It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hello, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is Danielle Kranjak, and I am the Director of Campus Initiatives at Hartman. As college students return to campus this fall, some of them for the first time in person, there's a lot of anxiety around how the stresses of the COVID era and our political polarization will and are impacting Jewish life on campus. Everything from Jewish education, Israel, Jewish peoplehood, and how to live our lives meaningfully as Jewish people. I thought today would be a great opportunity to speak with two of my colleagues from Hillel, Rabbi Jessica Lott, who works on campus at Northwestern University, and Rabbi Charlie Schwartz, who works at the Schusterman International Center of Hillel International. I've known both of today's guests for many years and consider both to be my trusted colleagues and mentors, with whom I myself have thought through many of the issues that we'll discuss today. Thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to just start out by asking about the particular moment in which we find ourselves. So we're in this COVID era with totally polarized politics about everything, including Israel. And I was just wondering, how do you find that the COVID era has changed the, quote, Israel on campus, quote, conversation? I'll jump in. So first of all, thank you so much, Danielle, for inviting me to be on the podcast. I'm really excited. I would say... The COVID era has changed everything. So like, of course, it's changed the conversation, but in some ways, it might be hard to suss out exactly how it's changed this conversation in particular. I think if we wanted to pinpoint, like COVID has brought to light all the issues that were under the surface in every realm, right? So the problems with the healthcare system, inequities in race and class. So I was trying to think about how has that affected this conversation? And I think it's actually a subset of the way that it's affected other conversations. So one thing that I think has really shifted over the course of the last year and a half or so is the way the conversation shows up on social media. And people are much more dependent on social media for their connections with other people. So that has been accelerated, magnified in a way that I think is pretty toxic. And Zoom too, right? Like we're all on Zoom, but I know that there are things that you might say in a Zoom chat that you would never say to a person's face that then sort of embolden people to make wild statements, personal attacks. And so I think that those things all play out in the Israel on campus conversation, right? The way that we use social media, and again, I don't know if this is about COVID or just about the moment that we're in because I can't separate those because COVID is the moment that we're in. So having a really concise infographic that oversimplifies a very complicated geopolitical issue is what's happening right now in the Israel on campus conversation. But I can't say whether that has to do with COVID. The other thing that I would say might have an impact is just that since we're all sort of in low level trauma, and I think especially 
students on campus who have all this ambiguous loss and the grief that they have around the college experience that they're not having has made everyone just a little edgier. And so conversations like the Israel on campus conversation that are heated when we're not traumatized have maybe gotten a little more heated when we are sort of in a general state of not operating as our best selves. One thing that I noticed is maybe before COVID, it was easier to tell our students, oh, what's happening online is online. It's not real life. But when their classes, when their Shabbat experiences, when everything is online, it's a little bit harder to draw those distinctions between social media and real life. Yeah, one of the big pushbacks on the idea of like IRL or in real life for younger generations is exactly that, is that, no, the way I present myself in a digital sphere is actually very, very real. I have a colleague who pushes really back against the idea of calling any meeting a virtual meeting or any gathering a virtual gathering because like it's still real. It's not virtual. It's just online. Danielle, I think that's 100% correct is COVID has sped up that process of making the digital more and more real for more and more people. And when your schoolwork is online, when your community building is online, when your Jewish text learning is online, the stream of social media and the way it hits you, I think feels more proximal and more real because it is real. And so going back to what Jessica said is when there is anti-Semitic or anti-Israel things coming up on people's streams, now that more and more of their social lives are online because of COVID, right? I think it hits them in a much, much deeper and much more traumatic way. I'm wondering about how this is complicated or informed by the differences in the generations that we see on campus. So Charlie, you and I have known each other since we ourselves were undergrads on campus. And Jessica, you and I first met when I began my work as a senior Jewish educator on campus at the Hillel Jewish University Center of Pittsburgh. At that time, Jessica, you had already been on campus at the University of Maryland for a little while. For me, the eight years that I spent on campus, I saw a real shift where initially millennials were our students and constituents. Now, in the Hillel world, millennials are our colleagues, and we're seeing Gen Z coming to campus. And I'm just wondering, how do you see the role of Hillel changing or shifting in light of these generational differences? I will say, because I also have a crackpot, non-researched hypothesis, that we also are like creating a sub-generation that's the COVID generation. And that's where I think it sort of relates to your earlier question that the people who have lived through this trauma, and I think school-age children, teens, and college students in particular, will be shaped by the experience that we are having now and have had over the last year and a half in ways that I think we will end up seeing as a generational shift. So I can talk about what I think, but I think it's actually also really linked. What's going on for college students today might even be really different from the conversation we had a year and a half ago about what's going on with college students today, because we've all been transformed by this experience of living through a pandemic. For me, I wonder about what are the through lines and what are the kind of essential questions that remain the same? I think even with generational shifts, those essential questions are the same. So who am I? Who are my people? How do I find community? How do I impact this world? For me, those questions are the same. And the way Hillel addresses them, answers them, teaches to them, connects people, those actually change significantly. 
And I would just add in, building on Jessica's point, I think how we find certainty or look for certainty or grounding when the world feels very uncertain. That's a key question that I think has always been there, but I think has come to the foreground, both in terms of COVID and climate change. So how do I stay grounded and what's my foundation when it feels like everything's crumbling? That is an essential question, which I think Hillel and Judaism addresses in some powerful ways. So obviously there's a massive generational shift going on. And I think Jessica's 100% correct in terms of we don't know how this experience will impact this micro or macro generation. But I do think that the questions that Hillel asks, that Judaism asks, that students ask, when you zoom out, I actually think they're largely the same, even if the priority or order of them might change a little bit. I agree with you so much, Charlie. And I think we often make the mistake of confusing generational identity with life stage. So I remember several years ago, I was in a program that was focused on millennials. But in the middle of it, I was like, you're not actually talking about millennials. You're talking about emerging adulthood. And that transcends generation. There are like aspects of emerging adulthood and the college experience that are the same. And then there are generations that shift over time. So right now, when we talk about millennials, we're talking about young adult professionals and that sort of realm. And I think that because we're still shifting into Gen Z, some people still think of millennials as emerging adults, and in some ways they still are, but that we actually have to treat those things really differently. One thing that I think it's important to notice, I actually read recently something that came out of JumpSpark in Atlanta that was talking about teens. And I think it was based on the Jewish Education's Project's research about teens, which was already a few years ago. So those teens from their research a few years ago, the Gen Now paper, those are college students now. And one of the things that I think is interesting, they sort of talked about that Gen Z is less tribalist and more globalist. And I'm actually curious to see, I haven't necessarily seen that play out, but I think if that's a trend, I'm curious to see how that affects Hillel and the conversation about Israel. And the other thing that I think is different and does connect with what Charlie was saying about climate change and about this conflict is that the students today are coming with a a very nuanced approach to social justice and equality in society. And have not exempted Israel from that conversation. And actually had a thing that I read from JumpSpark was talking about actually a shift in the understanding of tikkun olam and that there's sort of a problematic around tikkun olam and privilege that reinforces the idea that Jews are white people whose job it is to fix a world that's broken for other people. And that is something that Gen Z is very aware is just not real. Jews are not all white people. Jews are not all people of privilege. And also some Jews are white people and some Jews are people of privilege. And there's a really nuanced understanding of that by Gen Z that, to be honest, still like takes me aback. So something that I've noticed over the years of working with Hillel is that there seems to be a bit of a blurring of the lines between what Israel engagement and Israel education look like. And I'm just thinking about the kind of nuance and sophistication, Jessica, that you've identified our students are coming to us with. And I would just love to hear your perspectives about the difference between Israel engagement and Israel education, 
what you think is important, how you distinguish these two. Because Charlie, when you said that the essential questions that emerging adults, let's say, are coming to campus with are the same, but maybe our interventions are different or the way that we prioritize things are different. I'm just curious how we think that's going to play out. Because honestly, if you had asked me years ago, what would it look like if we had two years where the majority of our students did not get to go on birthright or do Israel internships? I likely would have said it wouldn't have a big impact on the way their identity formation or the way the work of Hillel was emerging. But now that we're in that space, I think it's clear that there has been a loss. And I'm just wondering if this categorization of engagement versus education with regard to Israel, how it plays out for you and what you think the interventions might be now. As I saw that birthright registration is open for winter trips And there's still a lot of uncertainty as to whether that can even possibly happen. So from my perspective, the lines can actually be very, very blurry when you talk about education and advocacy and engagement. The work that I do with Hillel as part of a team is we try to position ourselves and focus really on the educational side and thinking hard about education. So thinking about what are the experiences that deepen people's level of knowledge of Israel and the complexities of Israel. What are the resources and experiences that are looking for depth without a emotive outcome? It's like really, really a content-focused outcome. So how can I make students or help students and staff? My work is primarily with staff. How can I empower staff to teach content without hoping that a student will love Israel, will move to Israel, or will engage in Israel in a series of other ways? Realizing that like, the broad approach is that like, if students have a deeper understanding, knowledge base of Israel through an educational lens, among a variety of other lenses, then like those outcomes will ultimately be achieved. That combined with the fact that like students are looking for honest, deep content that matches the approaches and ideas that they're experiencing in the classroom, but from a Jewish perspective, right? And that's from my perspective, what the educational approach provides, that it's not trying to get you to do something. It's not trying to get you to sign up for something. It's not trying to get you to feel a certain way. Rather saying like, here's this deep body of content and complex society that you may or may not be connected to in some deep way that you can dive into. In the same way we talk about diving into the Sea of Talmud, like what does it mean to dive into the sea and complexity? That's Israel. So from my team's approach, the educational focus is really about deepening that knowledge level in a way that answers students' questions and curiosities without asking them to arrive at a certain end destination. As usual, I agree with Charlie. And I think that one, it's very hard for me to even draw a line between engagement and education. And I spent a lot of my career and my time at Hill International trying to like fight that distinction that actually our engagement work is educational and our educational work should be engaging. That like we are inviting people in to Jewish community through lots of different avenues and that every educational opportunity is an engagement opportunity and every engagement opportunity is an educational opportunity. And if you think that you're not educating when you're engaging students, you're wrong. Even if it's that it's just, just, you know, in quotes, an engagement associate taking an unengaged student up for coffee, they're engaging with them as a Jewish role model and their sharing of self is education. And so I fight against distinguishing the two. And I think in particular around Israel, right now, what I'm sort of seeing is that, and this is related to all of the things we've talked about before, beautifully, the fact that we have students 
who have really sophisticated, nuanced understandings of issues that they care about. And they do not, on the whole, have a sophisticated understanding of Israel and its history and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all those things. Their lack of education might be impeding engagement, (laughs) right? Because it's sort of like, I don't know enough to engage in this conversation. And I think one of the struggles is that because of the nature of campus and sort of how things work, and especially when things become politically heated, like they did last spring, Jewish students are sort of expected unfairly, I think, by their peers to have a sophisticated understanding of the history and the conflict and to have an opinion. And the majority of Jewish students don't because they haven't had deep educational experiences because we thought that just engagement was like enough or that the engagement that we did was all the education they needed. And that like just liking Israel and having positive associations with it, which on the whole, most Jewish college students today do. But I still think that there's this like students don't necessarily have a sophisticated understanding and that is impeding their desire to engage in the conversation. I also think there's a piece of when students do learn a lot about what's happening, it might quote unquote backfire. Like what they learn doesn't sit well with them or they're like willing to be critical in a way that I think their parents' generation, my parents' generation, certainly like was not willing to be critical of the Israeli government and its policies and the way that that works. And they're willing to say, okay, I learned a lot and I don't like what I saw. And I'm not sure what we do about that because especially, right, North American Jewish college students can't actually change Israeli governmental policy. The Israeli government can't even change Israeli governmental policy. So like, how can we expect students to? And I think that also this connects to the like soundbite and Instagram squareization of the conversation. Other students seem to have a very easy, simple read of the conflict. And many students who don't have a deep education will sort of think like, oh, well, that's the read. And they don't have the ability or the knowledge or the skills or the background to make their own Instagram square, or even maybe the confidence to say, there's like a lot more than a square can capture on this. And that it's worth doing the deeper work and the deeper conversation and the deeper education to get there. So a couple of yes ands. First, I like the idea of an educational process backfiring. I think that's where powerful Jewish role models come in. And like as Hillel professionals, the way that we can model what a student might be going through or reflect like that process in some ways, realizing that the Hillel professionals have a huge variety of political ideas, but in the ways that we can model people who take these ideas seriously and take challenges and critiques seriously, that can be very, very powerful and why we need like the best people on campus right now and why by and large, that's where they are. The other piece, just thinking about the need for Every student is different. Every campus is different. Students and campuses, by and large, deal with similar issues, but there is nuance into individuals and campus experience. So also thinking about what are the different approaches that we have for different campuses, different students, and different moments in time that can be deployed in different ways. And when I think about advocacy, education, and engagement, for some campuses, 
the most powerful, important thing might be like the first step of getting as many students to Israel as possible, regardless of what the experience is. On another campus, it might actually be like a very specific kind of trip or a different kind of educational experience. And when critique of Israel bleeds into anti-Semitism, that response is actually very, very different and nuanced response as well. So also thinking about like, what are the resources and skills and expertise that Hillel has that it can train up and deploy in different ways and does to meet like the different needs and challenges, regardless of generational shift, just what happens at UT Austin is very different than what happens at Maryland. A hundred percent. And as someone who worked on four different campuses and at Hill International for six years, I can't say enough times that every campus is different and every campus is the same, that there are like universal things about the college experience and about the university and college set and about higher education. That's why we can make jokes about that. And everyone is its own context and what the problems are and what the possibilities are vary so greatly from Hillel to Hillel, depending on what's the campus context, where are they situated geographically, what's the local leadership, who's your Hillel director, actually makes a very big difference in terms of what the conversation is, what the priorities are, who's on your board, who are your student leaders, all of that really matters and also doesn't matter at all. Hi. My name is Michelle Biter-Stone, and I want to tell you about an exciting, groundbreaking curriculum we are launching at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Foundations for a Thoughtful Judaism is based on four decades of the best Hartman scholarship on the foundational concepts of Judaism and Jewish life. This new four-volume curriculum explores the most compelling questions in Jewish thought and makes them accessible to all audiences. It's not a how-to Judaism 101 course, but instead serves as a complement for those looking to grapple with philosophical questions at the heart of Jewish tradition, specifically Jewish peoplehood, faith, ethics, and practice. To find out more on how you can bring foundations for a thoughtful Judaism to your community, please visit shalomhartman.org slash foundations. For people who aren't familiar with the campus initiatives portfolio at the Hartman Institute, something that we've been using as a guiding principle that is definitely informed by my years spent on campus and working at a multi-campus Hillel is this idea that a shared language will help contribute to resiliency. So at the beginning, Jessica, you were talking about the kind of fragility that comes when people feel loss and grief. And I'm really interested in seeing how educational resources and education as education, not just engagement, but very deep educational frameworks, particularly those that emerge from the I Engage project, how those shared thick ideas can help strengthen our students and therefore Jewish life on campus. So I think both of you know that this month in August 2021, we gathered a group of students at Hartman North America about half of whom were nominated by their Hillels to come together and have these discussions and do some I engage learning. And it was extraordinary to hear them say exactly what you've both just said, that every campus is different and every campus is the same. And I think there's a lot of learning that can come through difference 
And there's a lot of learning that can come through similarity and connection. So I'm really inspired by the Hartman partnership with Hillel and thinking about how we can use the resources that we have to further inform what's going on and hopefully to take some risks, right? Because if we're feeling secure and safe and that we have our network and that it's robust, I think it does empower us to maybe go there in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. When I first started working at Hillel, the open Hillel movement was big news, let's say. And although I don't think it is of the same relevancy that it was in 2014, I am deeply interested in how the Hillel movement on campus can continue to balance a commitment to Zionism with a robust pluralism. And I would love to hear your visions, whether they agree or disagree, about what that could look like. Can I first respond to one thing that you said about shared language, and then we can answer the question about pluralism? Because look, like I'm a rabbi and a Jewish educator. Language matters. We come from a tradition that says that God created the world with words, right? Language really matters. And we try to establish a shared language. But one of the other things that has happened in the conversation around Israel on campus is actually a shift in language that's been, I think, really, I don't even know what the word is destabilizing for Jewish students and for Hillel professionals. So things like, you can't say it's a conflict. You can't say it's complicated. The introduction of the language of settler colonialism and people using those words without knowing what they mean and actually maybe even having different definitions of what they mean, depending on who you are in the conversation, has really had an impact on the conversation. Again, someone else recently told me you're not supposed to say conversation. That actually that stuff, that there's a fight to redefine what the language is, the discourse, and a battle for what is the appropriate language to use. And it might be different from the language that we've been using internally in the Jewish community in a way that's very important to pay attention to. That's just an aside about shared language. In terms of pluralism, I think this is me speaking for me. I think pluralism needs to apply with regard to Israel the same way it does with regard to Shabbat and God and Kashrut. You can be a part of a community at Hillel, regardless of how you do Shabbat, regardless of what you believe about God, regardless of what kind of Kashrut you keep, and regardless of where you stand politically about Israel. And we have a particular way that we do Shabbat in the building, and we have particular rules around Kashrut in our building. We might also say that doesn't mean that every idea is welcome to have a platform that we're going to promote around stuff about Israel. So I think that there actually is sort of a misconception that that means students with particular ideas are not welcome. And therefore, Hillel does not actually have a commitment to pluralism around Zionism. But I think that's just not the case. I think pluralism is just really hard. And that Hillels are one of the places where we see the largest cross-section of Jews in the established Jewish world. And so it makes it really hard. And there are many places where many Hillels are not like large, robust communities that can have like a group for this and a group for that and a group for this and a group for that and a group like seven different Israel groups that all hold different opinions and three different kinds of services on Shabbat. That's just not the case on the majority of campuses. And so there needs to be some sort of consensus and pluralism actually looks different within different Hillels. So I've worked at one Hillel where it's like, you know, they have Shabbat and that is like, we have one option and everybody's doing it together. 
I also worked at Hillel where there were dozens of options of what could be happening. And those are both pluralism. And so too with Israel and with Zionism. Jessica was thinking about your comment about norms. The text that's often brought up to kind of support a, a Jewish approach to pluralism is Elu Velu Divrelohim Chaimchem. These and those are the words of the living God. But the next line is and we follow Beit Hillel. Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai were these two great schools of Jewish thought that argued all the time with each other. And at the end of the day, in most cases, we follow Beit Hillel. So the idea that we have in a pluralistic society or organization, we still have norms and we still have guidelines and there's still like a range of practice, but still a sense of practice is baked into the system. And I would say it is actually an important part of how we approach these things. I want to build on that because the Talmud then asked the question, why, if they're both right, why do we go with Hillel? And the answer is because Hillel used to teach the opposing opinion and his own opinion, right? That Hillel used to teach Shammai's answer first and then also teach his own answer. And that's even more so. The example is it's like, yes, we have a standard, but we also don't only teach our opinion. We actually like equip people with all of the information and we might even teach what is considered the opposing opinion first so that people can understand it. I have a question about that, though, because if we're talking about this life stage of emerging adulthood where people have these pressing questions that Charlie mentioned at the beginning, isn't there something destabilizing about presenting this whole variety of opinions? Like, isn't there something risky and potentially dangerous for us to teach everything and to teach it, quote unquote, out of order, as Beit Hillel did, of teaching the opposing opinion first? Yeah, so two thoughts on that. Like, one... I think we're talking about dangers. I think the bigger danger is not doing that because we talked about generational shifts, like the focus on authenticity and finding truth and pursuing truth as being like central ideas of Gen Z. Like I think the bigger danger is to say, we're not going to teach this stuff. We're going to obscure it. And then people finding out and then pushing back. So that's one. Then two, again, like the reason that the best people come to Hillel and we need the best people for Hillel is like to model complicated Jewish lives that are asking deep questions and manifesting those questions and their behaviors in the world, I think is so important. Like the role of senior Jewish educators, the role of engagement professionals, you know, the role of springboard fellows, modeling people who don't have all the answers but are committed to Jewish life in some key ways. I think that, you know, you can teach any level of complexity if you can then model some way of behaving in the world that is focused on a sense of belonging to the Jewish people and a dedication to some idea of Torah and its vote. You could take that in any direction, but yeah. So I think that the role of Hillel professionals then becomes like so, so important because you can address deep, complicated matters and say like, and I struggle with this and I'm still committed to the Jewish people for these reasons for me. And that's part of the mission of universities, right? There's like a huge marketplace of ideas that students are being presented with. And we sort of work alongside that. I do think part of the point of universities is to present people with new information and sometimes conflicting information and help them figure out who they are in the world, who they're going to be professionally. And our role sort of sits alongside the role of universities to really be able to have them fulfill a bigger part of their mission, which is what's my inner life? What are deeper parts of my identity outside of who I might be aspiring to become professionally? Maybe also connected with who I'm <laughs> aspiring to become professionally. And that that's a piece of what I think we're doing. Just going back to the idea of language and how we construct reality out of language, I think it's important to remember that 
this stuff shifts radically over time and also shifts geographically. So when I was an undergrad in the early 2000s, Palestinian, Palestine, those words were not said in Jewish communal contexts. I remember hearing people kind of stumble over them. And in my experience now, in the majority of places, like those words are now fine for people to use. After I graduated, I moved to Israel and I enlisted in the army and I was in a unit of largely left-wing socialist kibbutzniki. And I was astounded by the language that they're using to describe the Israeli army presence in, at that time, like the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And these are people in the army. And so I was like, you can't use those words. <laughs> um, and so just remember that like, the language that we use shifts over time, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, and really shifts geographic. So remember, there's a dynamic nature to how we talk about things. The other point I want to make quickly is that the pluralism around Israel and around all things is hard at Hillel and is harder because we have a mandate to positively impact every Jewish student on campus. And when we shifted from like more Jewish students or a lot of Jewish students or whatever it came before to every Jewish student, that means that we're asking for every Jewish student's voice to be at the table. And to maintain some level of community when you have that level of diversity is challenging and it's going to be hard. But that audacious goal of saying like, no, we have the obligation to impact every student and we need to figure out what that means to how to build community and to struggle with what community is and can be. It's an incredible thing to be doing and it's really, really hard. So when you expand who you're inviting to the table and who feels comfortable at the table or for some people it's like in the building, right? Those conversations of how we do pluralism is inherently going to be harder and more important and more valuable and more impactful. I want to say one more thing about language, because in my life, when I didn't become a campus rabbi, I totally became a linguist. And I think they're related. But there are two places where language gets created. One is in academia. And the other is teenage girls, right, is in social media. And we're at the intersection of those two places, right? So like we're having the TikTok influence on language and the Instagram influence on language. And then we also are at this place where it's also academics who are coining new terms. And those two things are happening in a really interesting intersection on campus. So I have a question for both of you. If we have this model of elu elu, these and those, both of these sets of ideas are worthy to be taught. And there's one that we hold closer as we are Beit Hillel, the House of Hillel, and there's one that isn't as close, but we also feel is valid. What are those other sets of ideas that we might associate as our Shammai ideas that we should be teaching? Whose narratives should we be raising up? Charlie, you spoke about every Jewish student having their voice at the table. So when we think about our pluralism and whether this is related to Israel or something else with Jewish peoplehood, what are we not teaching, let's say, that we should be teaching in our Elu Ve'elu model? Because both of you as sort of veteran educators with regard to campus and with regard to this model, I want to know what risk should we be taking? What will enrich our conversation? What's going to cause the divine voice to emerge and to give us the blessing? I have a list. Do you want me to pull? Yes. Top 10. So just caveating this, like these aren't like the normal halacha, Hillel's, the metaphoric, what are the Beit Shammai stuff that we should be teaching? I think a Jewish identity where Israel is not a central part of it, I think is something that a lot of students come to the table with and finding ways to honor that, that Zionism might not have to be the central element of who you are to be a deeply committed Jew. I think that's one. I think the language of obligation, when we think about how are we obligated to a tradition and what are we obligated to do, 
is something that we don't always teach well, and I think might be becoming a great Shammai idea. Tefillah, what does prayer look like? How do we create communities that are based on prayer? I think it's becoming more and more a Beit Shammai position. And how do we educate and open students up to the possibility of mystical experience? I think that maybe that's always been a Beit Shammai position. Okay, so I was thinking that you were specifically talking about around the conversation about Israel on campus in terms of this, which is like, I don't know, I feel like it's easier for me to answer the like, what are the things that we're not teaching that we should be teaching more broadly? And it's harder for me to suss out what should we be teaching. I do think that I agree wholeheartedly with the teaching of ambivalence <laughs> about Israel. I think that a lot of students will see themselves in that. And I think it's important because I think it's a departure from what the dominant narrative of our tradition has been over time. And maybe also even the distinction between the modern state of Israel and the longing and yearning for homeland. And like the question of, are those the same thing? I think the other Shammai voices, and I'm hesitant to say this because I don't know how we do this, right, are anti-Zionist voices and Palestinian narratives and Palestinian perspectives, the voices of Jews of color and their experience that have not been sort of dominant in the perspectives we're usually teaching. Mizrahi voices from within Israel. And that's not to say that I hold them as opposing. I hold them as non-dominant, potentially. Where I struggle is like the difference between the ambivalence towards Israel and towards Zionism versus like anti-Zionism. And so speaking for me, like having an ambivalent approach to Zionism or Zionism is not part of your Jewish identity, for me, like that's well within the tent. And then where I struggle is like, I'm actually not sure if anti-Zionism is. And so if that is a voice, I think critique, I think questioning, I think all those things but for me, the issues around anti-Zionism and the kind of cluster of anti-Semitic ideas that it brings up, even when it comes from inside the Jewish community, like pushes that away from like Beit Shammai. So for me, that's like not part of like the Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel kind of debate. So you're talking about non-Zionist versus anti-Zionist. Yeah, exactly. Non-Zionist versus anti-Zionist. And I know there are a number of anti-Zionist Jewish students. And I'm not saying that these aren't folks who should be welcomed into Hillel buildings because just because you said like students' practices and beliefs are in some ways, not relevant to what we do to welcome them into a diverse and vibrant community. But in terms of teaching, thinking about privileging ideas, for me, like that one feels actually outside of the framework of pluralism. Right. Like even Hillel and Shammai, right? Like there's also like some other dude out there. Hillel and Shammai were both operating within the bounds and sort of the same language of Jewish law and practice, but had disagreements from within that framework. And there are also people who are operating outside of that framework completely who are not included in the Eluva Elu. I've also had really interesting conversations, like not everything fits in to Eluva Elu. It's not like, well, your truth and my truth, if one of the truths is just not true. And that's where sort of, I think people have a misunderstanding of Eluva Elu does not mean anything goes and everyone's truth is true. Here's a challenge I have for that, though, because I think in some ways it's easier to bring a non-Jewish voice, like a Palestinian voice, than to bring an anti-Zionist Jewish voice into the conversation. Yeah, I think that's totally true. Or for me, that's totally true because there's like distance in some ways. What I find terrifying and exhilarating about your question, Danielle, about like who are the Beit Shammai's right now are like the voices that I don't even know I'm not hearing. So I remember the first time I read a poem by Mahmoud Darwish, a famous Palestinian poet, and it like blew my mind. I was like, 
this is voice coming from like a totally different perspective than I have, but it still feels very close to me, but has all these ideas that feel very distant for me. And when I started listening to that voice, it changed the way I thought about Palestinian relationship to the land. And so like what I find terrifying about the question of like, what are the Beit Shammai's now are the ones that I don't even know I'm not hearing and I haven't even heard of yet. And what I find exhilarating is like knowing that there are voices that I don't know that I'm not hearing that will have the opportunity to hear from and learn from in the future. Amazing. Well, I think that's a really beautiful kavanah for us, a beautiful intention for us to set for ourselves as Jewish educators as we're in the month of Elul, as we are headed into Rosh Hashanah, to the Jewish New Year. I know Jessica is organizing high holiday experiences for her campus particularly, and Charlie is holding the higher holidays experience for Hillel International and coordinating any number of experiences that will be accessible to students across North America and indeed the world. So I just want to thank both of you so much for taking time to talk to us at Hartman today, and I want to bless you both with so much success and so much beautiful Jewish learning and uncovering those voices that we don't even know in the coming year. So thank you. Thank you so much. Amen. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you so much, Danielle. Really great being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our show and special thanks to this week's guests, Rabbi Charlie Schwartz from Hillel International and Rabbi Jessica Lott from Northwestern University Hillel. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by David Svi Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon, with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by So Called. Transcripts of our shows are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. You can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.